0: Proudly student and listener-supported community radio.
1: CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city.
0: The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and/or the persons appearing on the program, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT FM.
2: Welcome. travel O Larn, trouble so hard. Don't about a my trouble for God. Don't about a my trouble for God. O Larn, trouble so hard. O Larn, trouble so hard. Don't about a my trouble for God. Don't about a my man, trouble. Yeah. Welcome to the Radical Reverend show, everyone. It's so much fun to be back on the air, I have to say. Uh, And of course, uh, just uh, shout outs to CIET 89.5 FM in its 35th year, and to our new station manager, Luke Smith, welcome aboard. Uh, Today, uh, we're doing a whole new thing. Uh, If you've been paying attention during September, you've been listening to the politicians, poets and priests segments. Uh, now we're getting a little bit more topical, and there is nothing more talk- topical right now than what is happening in Iran called a war on women. And to talk about that, I have my Iranian correspondent, we'll call him Arash Azizi. We've had him on the show before. He wrote an amazing book, please buy it, called The Shadow Commander, which will give you a real sense of the history of the country that he's from, Iran. Uh, Arash, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show.
0: Thank you, Sherry. It's great to be with you. It's great to hear your voice.
2: So um, he's also, of course, a history and researcher uh, a prof at New York University. So fill us in, Arash. What's going on? Tell us.
0: Iran is really going through a monumental movement, the largest protest since 2009. Um, and this protest, perhaps for the first time in the history of modern Iran, and frankly, for the first time, um, you know, it's, it's, events like this are rare in world history, perhaps. It's explicitly um, you know, feminist woman-led movement. So it all started when a 22-year-old woman called Mahsa Amini um, was visiting Tehran when she was stopped by what is called the morality police. Um, or the guidance patrols, to use a more direct translation. These are people who go around and enforce um, a rule on how women should dress. According to the Islamic Republic's rules, everybody should have the hijab. They should have cover their hair and all their body except for the hands. So um, they they arrested her, and she died in police custody, basically. Um, Now, evidence shows very clearly that she was beaten up. Um, She received blows to her head, and she was killed. Um, and, of course, a lot of people rose up in revolt. the um, entire Iran really rose up in revolt. She was of a Kurdish background, so they were very quickly protesting Kurdistan in her hometown of Saddam. Uh, but then all over Iran, in, in Azerbaijan, Turkish areas, and then finally Tehran. And, um, you know, it's been going on now for quite some time. Um, the government's response has, has been, of course, predictably brutal. Uh, more than 80 people have been killed so far. Um, a lot of these young women, Um, who've come out and really led this protest have been killed. Um, And, you know, it's like um, sort of morbidly funny. Everybody we know is arrested. They've arrested hundreds of people. I don't even sort of know the real number, but um, a lot of people that we know have been arrested, and that's the state of things. But the crucial thing is this is a movement that very clearly wants an end to the Islamic Republic. It wants an end to the Iranian regime and the corrupt rule of its leaders, um, and that has been its demand from day one.
2: You, you mentioned, uh, speaking here to Arash Azizi, who is the author of The Shadow Commander, a great book on Iran, and also a prof at New York University. Uh, Arash, you mentioned 2009. Most people don't see much but the headlines. So please uh, just update us on what that was, and a little bit you know, of a history of, because this isn't the first uprising against the
0: Islamic regime. Certainly. The the Islamic Republic um, came to power in in, in 1979, of course, and there has been many revolts against it um, in in the years since. In 2009, there was a presidential election um, which was rigged to favor um, the regime candidate, um, which was Ahmadinejad at the time, who's sort of notorious around the world for denying the Holocaust and saying there are no gays in Iran, and, you know, was this sort of flamboyant figure. Anyway, so he lost his re-election in 2009, clearly, but they rigged the election to make him win, and a huge movement erupted in Iranian society um, that went very quickly beyond, actually, the immediate electoral demands. Um, they shouted death to dictator. Um, they shouted death to Khamenei, who was the supreme leader of Iran. And that movement was the largest a movement since sorry, since 1979. So this, and, you know, if you remember, you, uh, you yourself came out and I spoke in a solidarity meeting in, in Toronto at the time, and there were meetings like that all around the world of Iranians, in support of the movement. So it was a really important national moment for Iranians. And now this is this is a new one. So 2000, you know, irrespective of what happens in this round of protests, we naturally don't know. And um, 2022 has already gone on as a remarkable year, one of the most important years in Iranian history, um, precisely because how vast the uprising has been and how it has really f- attacked and uh, targeted one of the fundamental um, Basically, the foundations of this regime, which is the the suppression of women, um, and in particular the enforced uh, enforced veiling rule, which is really a way for the government to um, to control society and control women who are half the society.
2: Rash, your own family has been touched, of course, you're Iranian uh, by the events there, and uh, uh, talk maybe just about your father's experience because that was shocking as well, and. Really involved a lot of people in, in, in on his behalf. Speak about that a bit.
0: Yeah, you know, of course. Yeah, so you know every Iranian family is in touch these days. You know we all have, as I said, all have friends and relatives who are um, who are in harm's way or have been arrested. But yeah, my father, um, who is a Iranian Canadian, I think he just passed his citizenship test <laughs> very recently, so he will be soon Canadian. Um, but yeah, he he's a he's a writer. Um, and uh, sort of a TV producer, you know, he made made a lot of TV shows in Iran back in the day, and he was living in Toronto. Um, and he went back to visit his father, who was now passed away, unfortunately. But he, this is a story that happens to many Iranians. So my father was living in Toronto. Um, he went back to see his father, who was sick, um, and they arrested him and they sentenced him to eight years in prison initially. Um, and uh, he was, you know, there was he got a lot of solidarity inside and outside. There and and a lot of pressure. He came out after about two years and he's back in Toronto. Um, but, you know, this is a story that has happened to many people. Now, and, and I should say, by the way, they, they, what they charged him with was basically essentially his Facebook posts and and, and writings um, against the government. So this is the, and the Iranian prisons are full of, of people like my father. Um, we were lucky he was able to get more attention, you know, because of his sort of Canadian links, but there are, there are thousands of people like that run in prisons, many more since the last um, few days, really.
2: I mean, that in itself is shocking. One wonders where the space in the prisons is. I mean, how, how how do you incarcerate thousands of people? How does that work, even?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, the notorious Evin prison in Tehran, um, this is where my father was. This is a prison that, of course, was there under the Shah. You know, there are many people who... we jokingly called themselves so double graduates. I mean they were they were in prison under the shock before the Russian and under the Islamic Republic um in this in this notorious prison. But now there are tons of other prisons um whose conditions are really, really bad. You know, I encourage your listeners if you if they look for example, there's actually a, a collaborative project called Iran Prison Atlas. Um you know they can they can find it and go and look at the conditions of these political prisoners all over the country. Um it's it's drawn by this uh, a really beautiful organization called United for Iran, sort based in Berkeley. Um, and it really shows you what are the inhuman conditions of, of these prisons. For example, there's this Guhar Dash prison in Karaj and near Tehran, um, where, you know, it's not actually a prison. It's effectively a big hall, um, you know, sort of big warehouse-type facility that they've turned into prison. And a lot of people, it's, it's part, of, uh, part of the repressive methods of the Islamic Republic is to, put people in these conditions, deny them medical care. My father himself was se- several times denied medical care. Um, it's, it's a way of uh, soft torture, really. Um, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a way of um, harassing prisoners so that they stop uh, opposing government. But, of course, it hasn't worked, because when you have a government that is so fundamentally unpopular, all the repression of the Islamic Republic, all the jailings and the executions and tortures that they've done in the last few years, has not been able to really um, scare people off. I mean, these young kids who are coming to streets now—these, these, these are people who were born in late 90s, you know, early 2000s. Um, you know, and they're so brave, confronting this regime, even though they very well know they might be killed. Because, you know, people when people um, don't uh, accept um, being unfree and having to live under these conditions very easily. So it's—I think it's a lesson for everybody that you know, repression can only go so far. It cannot stop people from coming out to demand uh, their fundamental rights
2: uh speaking here on the radical reverend show if you've just tuned in to arash azizi uh, author of the shadow commander book on iran iranian himself uh teaches at new york university and Arash. it really sounds like new york in the background there <laughs> so thanks for being on the show <laughs> we're speaking of course about the uh, the latest uprising in uh in iran so Okay, so, I mean, and you're right, I mean, there's so many millennials now, uh, here and there, are getting politicized and it's exciting to watch. Uh, I I suppose the but that comes at the end of that sentence is, we fear for them, you obviously fear for them, there's thousands in prison. Why, you know, what will make the difference? What is going to take down um, the Islamic Republic at the end of the day? Uh, and and what? why hasn't that happened in past uprisings?
0: That's an excellent question, Cherry. Now you're a you know, lifelong activist yourself. Um, as you know, we can read in your own book, the question of strategy comes always, right? It's always a problem for the left. Um, and not just for the left, people who want to make change. Um, question of strategy is difficult because um, a lot of times we are forced, uh, we are faced with forces like the Islamic Republic and the security forces that are really brutal. Um, that are, um, you know, really obviously centralized and have all the resources of society. So I would say there's two reasons why the regime has continued, and these two reasons continue to have, you know, to um, to basically be a problem for the current movement. First of all, is the sheer brutality and organization of its security forces. It's a very unusual setup. It's not like there is, you know, there is, uh, you know, there's a single security force and that will go away. In Iran, there's a militia called Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which you know, I explain this in my book, but the IRGC, um, this, this Guards Corps, which is a designated terrorist organization by the United States, um, the IRGC was founded in, in, in the aftermath of the revolution, and it's really a big ideological army that controls half of the Iranian economy. It has very extensive repressive forces all over the society. It's not very easy to crack, and it has really shown sheer brutality, as I said. Um, you know, they they stop at nothing. So that that's one reason, right? That's you know, that's that's one big reason that they've been able to um, um, go on. Um, and I think uh, it really has been hard to counter to that. But the second reason related to that is that we haven't been able to really cohere um, into a strategic, um, to, sort of strategies uh, that can help bring it down, bring the government down. Um, and a coherent alternative, right, that there needs to be a united opposition. Now, it's very difficult because, of course, in Iran, I mean, I give you my father's example. If a man who is visiting from Canada is arrested and sentenced to eight years in prison because he made some Facebook posts, you can imagine what happens if you're actually an activist on the ground, right? So, obviously, anyone who would be in any position of gathering together in any way is suppressed. Even, you know, you want just want to give you an idea. For example, the Association of Iranian Writers. I mean, this is mostly some... Sort of most of the old writers. I mean, but they—they they were never—they have never been allowed to really meet in the last 20 years. Even when they sort of try to meet for someone, you know, at lunch at someone's house, someone finds out and they come and, and separate them. So it's really hard for it to cohere in Iran. And of course, in exile abroad, it has been a difficult task. But I'm optimistic there that that is basically what we need to do. Iranians like myself who are exiles who are abroad need to put put our differences together and come together. Because, like, you know, I'm a Marxist, obviously, but we have Tons of Iranians. You might be liberal. You might be supportive of the former monarchy. Uh, you might even be someone who was sort of supportive of the government at some point and supportive of the of the regime at some point. But now knows that it's um, it's not no longer a right thing to do. All of these people need to come together and demand a better situation for our country. And and what we do have that the United States is a very strong sense of national identity, Iranianness, if you will. I mean that's a very important, powerful weapon that we have. That that, you know, that is not available everywhere. Iranians, you know, I'm sure, that I mean, you're in Canada, you can see them everywhere, you know, everywhere in Canada, you can see Iranians, no matter what, usually love their country. And this regime is really destroying this country. Um, it's destroying this country for everybody, um, you know, except for a very small clique of people who really benefit from their corrupt truth. So um, I would say the only way to counter that brutality is to come together and have a united opposition that can, um, that can present a credible alternative, um, which of course will then make uh, strategies like a general strike. It will have been calling for a lot of general strike, and uh, you know, um, and then we will see where it goes. But um, you know, the, the call has definitely become uh, more common. Um, but when you have united opposition, of course, the call will come from a single place. Uh, it will be clearer, um, and also crucially, last thing, all revolutions win when there is a, um, when there's defection from the security forces. So, um, you know, that needs, that really does need to happen. Um, And that will only happen when we have a credible alternative and a united opposition. So um, I hope we get there. Uh,
2: I want to ask you a question as as a Marxist and somebody from the left and of the left. is, Is there, do you notice a reticence of the left to speak out about this? Because, of course, uh, you know, right-wing Americans are also speaking out about it. Is is there, a, I, I I don't know, I don't want to say uh, you're closer to the ground on this. Where is the left on this in North America and for that matter in Europe?
0: I mean, to be honest, all Iranian workers, um, left-wing activists like myself, we all feel be betrayed by the left in the west. That's really the only way to do it. The, sorry, the only way to express it. It's, it's, it shouldn't be an effort, right? It should, we shouldn't have to go out of our way to tell, hey, let's just, a young woman was killed by the police because of what she was wearing to support a re- regime that is capitalist to the bone um, and repressive and puts has killed tens of thousands of, of its own people, including a lot of socialists and trade unions and women's activists. You should probably have a position on this and oppose it, Right. It shouldn't be a struggle, right? It shouldn't be, uh, it should be a pretty clear cut situation. Um, but unfortunately, um, the, at the best case scenario, the left is sometimes silent. Um, uh, no, no, I do want to acknowledge, you know, Bernie Sanders made a statement. A lot of people have made a statement. Um, there's been, if you look at some of the more left wing press, there's definitely been um, a lot of support. You know, Slavoj Zizek said something in support. I mean, um, but it's not as widespread as, as you would want it to be. And unfortunately, that's because um, a lot of people on the left have their priorities skewed, um, and uh, I don't know, I guess they don't have clear politics. I mean, there's no question for me, right? If, if you tell me there's somewhere in the world that police is um, uh, killing um, someone, some woman, because of how they dress, and there's all these women rising up against them, all these things that I just said, uh, it really shouldn't be, I mean, some questions are actually hard and turning but I, I really, for the life of me, can't understand um why is turning? and if if it's a question of a standing you know on the side well you know um standing on the side of the wrong people in politics you you can't choose who, who are your partners right if you advocate i don't know if you advocate for um gay marriage for example um some topic you know <laughs> something about um since you had a pioneering rule in that uh, role in that movement um you know you have all sorts of supporters right and you should welcome them, or we're fighting for abortion rights. Um, you have all sorts of supporters and, and should welcome. that's how you win and that's in, in a bigger way I mean human society you know we can agree on something disagree on something um, but I think uh, as I said the problem is that a lot of people don't have their um, really don't have their priorities in, in the right place and I think they don't also the other problem is a lot of people don't have a real clear position on, on democracy I have to say like do they actually want you know are we in favor of of democratic government, or not. and you know, there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of things people would say around that to not address the question head on. Uh, but it's as basic as this: in Canada, no matter there are tons of troubles, tons of problems, tons of undemocratic tendencies, but people elect who is in the government, in in one way or the other. And in Iran and in many other countries, they don't. Um, so, you know, what's What's the position there like do we think it's important for people to elect their own papers or not Um, and unfortunately i think it's a very dangerous reality that a lot of people in the liberal democracies now you know in canada countries like canada on of course on the right but also including some people on the left don't really care for for democracy and don't don't really care for basics of of liberal democracy and i think that's a dangerous situation because of course if you don't support uh, this system not only you know, not only you want to support in other countries, but it can even collapse at home.
2: As speaking here, if you're just tuning in on the Radical Reverend Show, to Arash Azizi, who is a academic, uh, teaches at New York University, also author of The Shadow Commander, and of course, we're speaking about the feminist uh, revolution, if you want to call it that, that's uh, ongoing in Iran and the brutal uh, repression of that. Um, And also just talked about, of course, uh, some of the left's reticence to engage in this. Uh, Perhaps I'm just wondering, Arash, if it's there's a real concern, of course, uh, with reality about Islamophobia in the in the West and uh, and also, you know, a sensitivity from feminists about women here who wear the hijab. Uh, Do you think that plays into this at all?
0: Um, it, it can sure but you know i, I want to be clear about this of course we need to oppose islamophobia in the west um and of course this isn't about uh women who wear the hijab or don't. half of my own family wear the hijab some of them on the most strict form of the hijab right um more than half actually probably um you know according to how you count the, the family the broader family perhaps more than half um but this is about a forced mandatory veiling right this is about it being forced on the people and frankly it's about something more, right? In, in the entire world, there's only one government that enforces their job on every single person, and that's the Islamist regime of Iran. Um, and tons of other things. Women don't have some of the most basic um, rights. Um, they can't travel without their husband's permission. They can't go to a stadiums until re- you know, and recently. Some have been allowed to go. But you know, some crazy things that really it's just hard to explain sometimes. You know, Women can't sing in Iran. Can you believe that? You uh, you cannot have a woman's voice is not allowed, if, if, if a woman's voice is singing, is not allowed to be um, um, broadcasting radio. That means, or, or anywhere else, really. That means if this was a radio show in Iran and you just wanted to sing two lines, this program would be banned, right? So we really are facing a total apartheid here. But also, we shouldn't be so narcissistic, really. when there's a um, So when there's a struggle in Iran, the people really should really try to understand. Um, the terms of that struggle in Iran. Of course, we should, um, our hijabi uh, sisters, whether in Iran or whether here, um, are part of the Iranian nation and, and part of the struggle against this uh, authoritarianism. But we shouldn't make the, when you want to support a struggle in Iran, you shouldn't immediately make it about your own issues in the US or in France and other issues. You know, it's, it's the same thing with, for example, imagine if Tibetan, the Tibetan um, struggle, which we know there's a lot of that in, in, in Canada. Um, in Toronto, right, the Tibetans fighting for independence, for fighting for sovereignty, people, they are fighting against the rule of the Chinese government over them, right? Um, now, can this play to, you know, anti-China sentiments uh, or, or things that can be sort of racist? Of course they can, right? Of course, of course unfortunately, the way it works is that a lot of people uh, can misuse or abuse something. But we shouldn't center the racist uh, or them. We should center the people's struggles. So the same way that we should support the justice struggle of the people of Tibet, Tibet against um, China's encroachment on their, on their homeland um, and the repression of the people there, you should support the struggle of the people in Iran because of your own principles. Um, and in no way does that mean you support um, discrimination against Muslims or Islamophobia.
2: Uh, Irash, so earlier in this discussion, and thank you for it, this is giving a, a lot of context and some background to. Uh, because, you know, you spoke <laughs> about coming together of Iranians in exile and the challenges there between, you know, those who might have supported the republic, those who are perhaps even monarchist still, uh, those who are liberal, those who are Marxist, whomever. Uh, is that happening? Are, are Iranians coming together over this or are, are there challenges there as well?
0: Um, for the difference, there a lot of challenges. Iran... Iranians, unfortunately, have been very divisive for the last uh, few years. This is rooted in some real questions. The regime has a good way of dealing and dividing people. It divides them on the basis of nationality, it divides them on the basis of their demands. Um, There's a lot of blame game as to who is responsible for the Islamic Republic. It's also the reality that the strategies can be very different, right? The same people who are coming out in protests today, and the same me who I'm supporting this uh, process, of course, 100%, I mean, thousand seventeen. I voted for Rouhani. I voted in, in the inside presidential candidates of this regime. Now, why did I do that? And why did majority of Iranians do that, by the way, right? So I wasn't alone. I was actually the majority of my people. Um, well, we did that because we were trying a different strategy—a strategy of strengthening one wing of the regime against the other. And that's how the people and the oppressed are, right? You always go through different um, different methods. You 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 try voting. You try street demonstrations. You try strikes. You try you know you try different. Strategy, but sometimes people mistake different strategies with different goals. Unfortunately, and I think that happens, you know, all across, not just related to Iran, right? We shouldn't do that. We should remember that we have the same goal. Now, I think in this round there is more unity than has ever been before because because it's very hard to uh, not see that this regime needs to be overthrown, um, and a lot of people are coming to that conclusion. Um, and I think if you've seen there are a lot of rallies around the world. I'm um, certainly in Iran, there's a lot of unity. Um, and so that, that makes me hopeful. And, you know, as a as Marxist, I'm happy to sit down with anyone who agrees on some j- basic ground rules um, for Iran, right? Like democracy for our future, a constitutional assembly that can, can determine the future of our country, keeping up its territorial integrity, I think is important for, for, for most Iranians. Um, and, you know, if you have, have these basic ground rules, we can have a really grand coalition, um, and I have no problem with people, you know, you should mention monarchies. I mean, the former monarchy has a lot of fans in Iran, like the east for some good reason. I can see why they compare it with sort of current conditions, and some of them might be nostalgic. But as a nation, we're going to have, we can have a lot of differences onto a lot of things. But what we believe is that we shouldn't be ruled by a regime that kills us on the street, and we shouldn't be ruled by a regime that we didn't um choose. What we need instead is a democratic condition um, in which our differences can be solved democratically and through elections. That's what we want. That's what Iranians have struggled for, for more than 100 years. We had the constitutional revolution in 1905, 1906, one of the first in the, um, in, in the global south, really, first in the world in, in some ways in that era. Um, and that struggle is the same as struggle. It's the same as struggle. That, they, we wanted the parliament and the rule of law then, and we want parliament and rule of law now. Um, and that's something we can all get behind.
2: So we just have a minute or two left uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Arash Azizi, uh, author and professor at New York University about, of course, the feminist uprising in Iran. What can we do to help Arash? What can folk who are not Iranian, who are not in Iran, uh, who uh, are out here, uh, what can the, what can folk of uh, Toronto, the GTA, Canada, and whoever's listening, which can be from around the world, what, what can we do to help?
0: Um, there's a lot, there's a lot, I'm very glad you asked that question. There's a lot you can do to support the movement in Iran. Um, and a lot of it that might seem nothing to people might seem a small, it actually matters a lot. For instance, keep talking about it. Um, post about it, tweet about it, write about it, amplify the voices of Iranians, their op-eds, you know, their demonstrations, their struggles, amplify it. Because the, this basically in, will always translate into pressure on the regime. And this regime, um, you know, the more pressure we put on it, um, the better it would be. Write um, to the Iranian embassies um, where you are. Protests in front of join demonstrations um, in the main squares in your towns. Iranians, there are Iranians everywhere. There were, you know, there are already demos, demonstrations uh, scheduled for Saskatoon, uh, if, if you believe it, um, or every every corner uh, of of um, Canada. Really, there's like the, there's been already rallies in like 15 cities in Canada or something. So join these demonstrations. Write letters of protest to the, to the uh, Iranian embassies. Um, write to your representatives in in uh, you know in democratic countries, whether it's U.S. or or Canada. Write to them and say that you want their governments to come out in full support uh, of the of the struggle uh, of Iranians. Um, and so these are some of the things. And also you know donate to a, a variety of um, organizations. That and I think we are not at this stage of trying to put some emergency funds out there in Canada and and the U.S. I have to sort of. Get the legality of that but um, I'm sure you know you'll announce that when that happens it's, it's sort of gonna happen very soon actually I think. Um, and this is these are funds that sometimes we need to give to the families of those who are arrested in Iran or, or help them in, uh, in help them in a variety of ways. Um, but in general, um, Iranians there's thanks to this regime, the Iranians sort of spread all over the world, find them wherever they are, look at the, their struggles in solidarity and support of the struggles in Iran. Um, and try to help them in in any way that you can.
2: Thank you so much, Rash. Always a pleasure to have you on the Radical Reverend Show. Until next time.
0: Thank you.
1: CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound
0: of your city.
2: Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. So nice to be back. And of course, 35 years of CIUT 89.5 FM, so here's to the station that hosts all of this. Um, Thanks so much to Arash for his comments about what's happening in Iran and Here's hoping, Uh, I know there've been huge demonstrations there, but we're gonna shift gears this uh, half of the show because uh, a couple of high holidays have happened um, in Judaism in the last little while. And uh, we are very lucky in my church at Trinity St. Paul Center of Faith, Justice and the Arts to be next door to Shir Le which is an inclusive Jewish congregation that has worshiped at the Jewish community center for years and years. And here is their new cantor, Cantor Wunsch. Cheryl, by first name, to speak about all of that. So welcome Cantor Wunsch to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks so
1: much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
2: So let's talk about this season and you have been working virtually nonstop. So (laughs) we'll acknowledge that. Uh,
1: Let's talk about New Year's first. Sure. So um, last week was Rosh Hashanah, which literally means head of the year. So it's the Jewish New Year. Um, It always falls in the fall, in the autumn, but it moves because we're on a lunar calendar. But Rosh Hashanah is when we start the year off. And it's not the same as a secular New Year. It's not, you know watching the ball drop in Times Square. It's a time for community. It's time to be together with family. It's also a time for prayer. Um, Some say that Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the birth of the world, uh, which is a lovely image that we have a, a little birthday party for the world every year. But we're also preparing ourselves spiritually for a new year, reflecting on the year that's been and preparing ourselves for what's coming up. In fact, there's an entire month that leads up to Rosh Hashanah where we are instructed to start doing something called cheshbon hanefesh which means taking account of our souls so we actually spend a month in deep reflection to think about how were we this year you know what did we do well what didn't we do so well and where do we want to uh, make improvements in the new year
2: speaking here to cantor Wunsch should... now Just for those out there in listener land who probably don't know quite what a cantor is, maybe you could explain that and the difference between being a rabbi and a
1: cantor. Sure. So, uh, the role of the cantor has evolved significantly over time. Originally, the cantor was the person who would lead the prayers musically. And that's still a large part of the role of the cantor. But in the past couple of decades, the education of a cantor has changed and expanded. And now in the more progressive movements of Judaism, um, cantors and rabbis have equal status in terms of our rights and responsibilities. So um, to go, if you are in say the reform movement or the conservative movement, one of the progressive movements, um, there is seminary where we study alongside our rabbinical colleagues. It's for my school. It was a five-year master's degree program, um, and at the end we walk out with an ordination and the ability to marry and and do all of the uh, the legal things and sit on a rabbinic. And all of those things. Um, the education is slightly different than our rabbinical colleagues because we focus on the music and the liturgy, um, but we also study history and pastoral care and education and text and all of those good things. And the rabbis focus more on the text side um, of, of the piece. But we have, we're very complementary roles. It just so happens in my congregation. Um, We don't have a rabbi and a cantor. We have me, um, and I serve as the sole spiritual leader, and we're so lucky that we have a cantorial soloist, a chazan, who comes in most years for the High Holy Days to do a bulk of the singing. She happened to be on maternity leave this year, Um, so I was doing dual roles, but we also have wonderful, wonderful lay leaders who love to sing and play instruments and make music, and they do a lot of... um, a lot of the music in the services with me, without me, and it's it's a really beautiful collaboration.
2: Let's talk about your congregation because it has quite a wonderful history. Yeah. I'd share that with us.
1: Sure. So um, Congregation Shirley Bainu, uh we are 26 years old. We just had our 25th anniversary last year. So um, I have not been with the congregation from the beginning. I just uh, completed my first year with the congregation. Um, but the origin story of Shirley Benu, which by the way means the song in our hearts, it's a beautiful name for a congregation, um, was that 26 years ago, there was a small group of Jewish women, of Jewish lesbians, who did not find a place in the mainstream establishment synagogues in Toronto. Um, for, for various reasons, there sexual orientation being one of those reasons. They just didn't find a community where they felt fully accepted, fully loved, and fully a part of everything. So they decided to make their own. Um, Very grassroots, very wonderful. And one of those women was Aviva Goldberg, who was, who took up the mantle of leading and and years later was also ordained as a rabbi. And they started with High Holy Day services. So they met for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur um, every year. And every year they grew and grew and eventually added monthly Shabbat services and um, did so up until her retirement two years ago. And here we are today. So we are um, an open, we are not part of any of the streams of Judaism, but we are progressive egalitarian, um, inclusive community. Um, We are probably about 50 to 60% LGBTQ members. We're about 40 to 50%. I'm sort of fudging these numbers because I haven't seen the most recent database, but uh, of uh, interfaith families. And we practice Judaism our way with a lot of tradition, a lot of um, history and also a lot of creativity.
2: Speaking to Cantor Wunsch uh, here, Cheryl Wunsch. And Cheryl, if I may, I'll call you by your first name. Uh, let's talk about Yom Kippur because you just, I mean, we were so honored to have you celebrate that actually in our physical space this year. What does that look like and what it what what's it about?
1: Sure. And and thank you for hosting us. It was so wonderful to be in that space, to be together. This was our first time in person uh, for the High Holy Days and to be in such a beautiful space that was so welcoming was just wonderful. So thank you for that. Yom Kippur is known as the Day of Atonement. So as I was saying before, Rosh Hashanah, we're preparing ourselves for a new year. And then we have these days in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And the idea of those days in between is that we are supposed to begin the process of something called tshuva, which means returning, but it's really about repentance. And so we spend those days apologizing to people that we've harmed And so that, again, we can start this new year off um, with a clean slate. And then the day of Yom Kippur is a day for repenting or returning to God. And regardless of what your image of God is, whether it's something external or internal, the day is for prayer and for reflection and for finding that way into forgiveness so that we can move on and do better. So it is typically a fast day of no food or drink um, for around 25 hours is the idea, 25 hours. So you don't accidentally do less than a day. And it begins at sundown, all of our um, days and our festivals and observances start at sundown. And it starts with a service that has become known as Kol Nidre and that, that's just the name of one of the prayers that's said, but we call it the Kol Nidre service because it's this very uh, powerful evocative piece of music um, that is sung. And so we gather for the Kol Nidre service, we begin the process of atoning and we spend the next day in prayer in reflection, atoning as a community. And that's one of the most beautiful things is that we atone for sins that we ourselves didn't commit because we know that somebody in our community might have. And so we take collective responsibility for each other and we know that it's our responsibility to help each other do better in the new year. And we spend the day in prayer, we spend the day in contemplation. Some synagogues will go all day into the evening for us we go a good chunk of the morning into the afternoon and then we take a break and we have um these wonderful workshops that our congregants lead so there was a dance workshop and a meditation workshop sometimes there's a storytelling workshop beautiful things that really help people connect to their their bodies or their souls in the afternoon and then we come back together for the closing service which is called neilah where we think this this image of the gates of heaven that are open for us and that will close at the end of the night and we have one last chance to atone for our sins and to be together as a community and to really take a good healthy step into the new year.
2: Speaking to Cantor once here and you speak with such passion and love about this. How did you become a Cantor? Why you?
1: <laughs> I ask myself that all the time. Why me? It's 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 quite a long story. I'll try to give you sort of the the short version. Um, I grew up in a household where one had to take music lessons of some sort. It was one of the family values. And um so of course we started on piano and I quickly wanted to to switch to a new instrument, and and voice was was my instrument of choice. Um And so music was always a part of my life. And I went to a performing arts high school where I was a music major and it was really, it was really important to me. And on the flip side, um, I, I, this is gonna sound so nerdy, but I loved Hebrew school. I had a great time going to to Hebrew school. In fact, we went three times a week back then um, and I loved it. And I loved going to synagogue and I loved singing and I loved the prayers. Um, But it wasn't until I went to Jewish summer camp that I really thought about Judaism as a career. And it's also when I first really realized that women could be leaders um, in Judaism. My, My synagogue was very progressive, and we were among the first to have a female clergy person, but it was at camp that I really, really started to to notice and and recognize how much it meant to me. And so I started thinking about it and learning about it in high school. I got some more information about the the seminary that was associated with the movement I grew up in and um kind of had it in the back of my mind for a while. And then I went to university and things changed as they do when we when we grow up and I ended up going into youth social work instead. Um, and I and I did that for a little while, but there was it was a great start to my career, but it wasn't exactly right for me. Um, And I was still working in my synagogue, running the youth group, teaching Hebrew school, and I was still singing in choirs and taking music lessons. And my voice teacher at the time also was a cantor. And and she knew I wasn't happy in my career and I was in my early twenties and still figuring things out. And she kind of looked at me and said, when are you gonna go to cantorial school already? And I said, I can't, I can't, I have to be in the social services. I need to be in a helping profession. It's really important to me. And she kind of looked at me a little like cockeyed and said, What are you talking about? What do you think cantors do? And so I, I said, I don't know, they sing in synagogue. And she said, You know, Cheryl, they sing in synagogue once or twice a week. The rest of the week, they're teaching, they're doing pastoral care. They're visiting people. They're organizing. They're planning. They're doing all those things that you love to do with your youth group and with your clients and the music and the worship. And I said, okay, (laughs) you got me. Um, And so I started the application process. It really, I mean, it took a while. took about a, a year. I had to do my GREs, which In Canada, we don't do those standardized testing. So I had to study for the GREs and apply. And I had to fly down to New York for an audition and I had to be vetted by local cantors. who all this stuff. But but then it happened. And so 2006, off I went to seminary and the rest is history. And
2: and where was the seminary in New York?
1: Yeah, the first year was in Jerusalem. So we all spent one year uh, studying in Israel and then my campus was the, the New York campus, and I was there for four years.
2: Speaking to Cantor Wensheer about just her journey as a cantor, as a leader at, uh, at this progressive and wonderful synagogue, share La Venue, if anybody's interested, that happens at JCC, but also now on High Holidays happens, uh, just down the block at Trinity St. Paul's at my church. So we're, we're delighted to, to host you. Uh, So what's it like now that you're actually in the job? I mean, you and I, not to tell tales out of school, but we've just been complaining about some of the drawbacks of the job. And there are, every job has them, right? Um, And of course we work really hard and particularly around High Holy Days, which you have just been through and are still in or not. So talk about what the day-to-day of your life looks like. and some of the trials and tribs, but also what are the joys?
1: A lot of joys, let's be very clear. Let's put that out there first. Um, Being able to walk people through the different stages of their lives, um, even through some of the most painful and difficult times is joyful um, because we're so connected. And, and that's what so many of us have been longing for for these past few years is connection. And so I feel very lucky that even through the pandemic, just because of my job, because of my career, I have maintained connections. Yeah, they've been on Zoom, but you know I'm still a part of people's lives. And that's really rewarding. Um, what's a typical day for me? That is... Uh, that's impossible <laughs> to answer. Every day is a little bit different, as you know. Um, I have an open calendar that people can book meetings with me. So I kind of every day have to check and see how many meetings that other people have booked with me. And sometimes that's because someone wants to discuss their child's upcoming mitzvah or um, they're interested in joining the synagogue and want to learn more about it, or they need some spiritual guidance, or they're in mourning and they need some comfort. Um, so So people can book meetings with me any day most of the day um so some days it's lots of different meetings with lots of different people some days there's a board meeting um if there's high holy days then i am typically for about well high holiday preparation really started in may to be very honest with you um with organizing who's going to do this piece and who's gonna read this and write that and and on and give certain sermons. We're a very um collaborative congregation. So I was not giving all of the sermons. I had congregants giving sermons and doing different pieces, it's really beautiful. Um, but there's a lot of organizing that goes into that. Um so I that started back in May. And then there was finding all of the readings, and I um I had I wrote my own prayer book this year. Um Because of the hybrid nature of our services, we needed something that could both be emailed out to everyone at home and could be printed. Um, So yes, there was a lot of cutting and pasting, but there was also a lot of my own work that went into it. Um, So that started back probably in June. Um, And then rehearsals with all the musicians, lots of that, lots of singing, and my own reflection time, writing, thinking through, what we're gonna do, planning my lessons. I'm also teaching my my be mitzvah class at the time. And I also have a lot of private students that I tutor. Um, as I'm sure you can, can attest to, this has been a very, very busy wedding year, um, this year and next year. And um, so I meet with all of my wedding couples six or seven times before the wedding to do premarital counseling. So most days I'm going from a meeting with someone who needs to talk about something to a planning meeting, to three or four students, to a wedding couple. Um, and that's my day. And somewhere in there, I'm also writing my newsletter articles and planning the services and um, and 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 going to the gym and, and trying to take care of myself. Um, so it's a lot, but it's it's a good a lot, <laughs> if that makes any sense.
2: Uh, it's a very good lot, and that sounds incredibly busy, uh, Canterwunsch Cheryl. Uh, let's let's talk about your congregation a little bit more in the context of where it sits in the Jewish world, because I think for somebody outside looking in, I know in the Christian world we have all these different denominations. There's a lot of them, and people want to know what's the difference, you know, between one and the other. And a lot of times it's arcane and goes back many, many centuries, and difficult to describe. And it really is up to the leadership in that congregation. But some, but there are kind of big, more general differences. So perhaps, like, paint that picture for us a little bit. So because Shirley, Ben, you've, you've mentioned it's inclusive, that you have a high number of 2 LGBTQ people in it. Uh, other than that, like, where do you sit?
1: Great question. And there isn't a one and done answer so in judaism there are established movements um denominations you can say and then there are those that are outside the establishment and we happen to be outside the establishment i was personally raised in the reform movement and i was ordained in the reform movement and have worked most of my career in the reform movement but we are not part of the reform movement and I love it. Um, We have more flexibility and more freedom to make our own choices and to use our own values and our own ethics to decide what works for us. And by
2: reform movement,
1: just. So the reform movement is one of the liberal movements of Judaism. Um, It's not the only liberal movement. It's not the only progressive movement, but it's the largest um, and and the oldest of the progressive movements. Um, so it has also evolved and changed over time. Um, and the reform movement as it is now doesn't really look anything like the original reformers had intended. Um, but it is is—it is the largest movement um, in the progressive Jewish world. So the reform movement is completely egalitarian um, and and all of those good things and welcoming and open and inclusive. Um, It wasn't necessarily that way 26 years ago, but it has come a very long way um, and really is a a social justice-based movement. Shirley Bainu started because these people couldn't find a home in any of the movements. Um, Even the reform movement then was not, open and welcoming. And um, as, as much as they tried to be, right, we have to consider the times. So our congregation really has within it people that grew up in various different forms of Judaism. We have people that grew up very traditional, what you might call orthodox. We have people that grew up secular and didn't go to synagogue ever in their lives. And we all sort of everywhere in between have come together because the idea of a Jewish community where you can be Jewish without having to be in a certain box of Judaism and still bring your own identity is really valuable. So in terms of our politics and our ethics and our morals, absolutely, we are um, as progressive as, as can be at this point i would say um of course not a competition but <laughs> that's that's sort of how how i see it we are open and liberal and and inclusive and progressive religiously we play around a little bit and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way i mean it in the way of we may do um a certain prayer with a very traditional melody, with traditional text, but have um, an interpretive creative translation. Um, Or we may sing something in English instead of in Hebrew. And we sort of bounce back in between traditional, progressive, creative um, in our worship style so that everyone who is there is getting a little bit of a flavor of what they know and learning something new. and it's a balance. And I probably don't always hit the ballads exactly right, but that's why we all do it together. And that's why I have these wonderful lay leaders who can say, you know, actually we prefer this melody for this and let's try it this way. And um, and so everyone can kind of find a way in to our worship services. And it's not just services, it's programs and education and, and all of those wonderful things that we all do. Um, and it's just... Jewish.
2: Speaking to Cantor Wunsch, and if you have just tuned in, boy, have you missed a lot! Uh, you should know this will be on podcast in a few days, and so you can always find it wherever you get your podcasts—iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever. But I—we just have a few minutes left, and I—and uh, and in light of my first guest, Arash, uh, speaking about that movement that is rocking our world right now, and that's. Uh, the uprising, revolution some call it, over the death of Masa Amini in Iran. And this in in essence is really kind of uprising against some of the aspects of toxic religion. And I know in Christianity, we have a lot uh, to answer for, but but also that a lot of people tend to come into my congregation who grew up with some of that toxic religion and are overcoming it, especially in the queer community. what would you say to someone who was born Jewish, but drifted away, was, was too much, or was badly handled, or they did not feel welcome? What would you say to welcome them back?
1: So that that person is a huge number of my congregation. So what would I say to them? First, I would say I am so sorry, because that's not what Judaism, that's not what any religion should be or or is. And, and for you to have been pushed away in that way is unacceptable and I'm so sorry. And I would say there are other ways and you just have to put a little toe in and know that there are people out there in your faith, in other faiths that love you and accept you And you deserve to be able to practice your religion, your culture, be part of your community as much as anyone else. And so if where you grew up is not the right place for you, we can help you find a place that is. Whether it's our congregation or the congregation down the road, you deserve a place and there is room for you here.
2: To atheists who are dead set against the idea of spirituality and God. Um, what would you say? I mean, I personally am finding that that there's a great hunger for that amongst millennials. Are you finding that too? Uh what would you say? We've got like one minute <laughs> speaking to Cantor One Church of Menu.
1: Judaism specifically, I can't speak to any other uh any other faith. Um Yes, has a spiritual theological aspect. It's also about community. It's about belonging. It's about culture and it's about home. So I gave a whole sermon about the fact that I don't know about God. I don't know if I what kind of God I believe in. And that's okay. You don't have to have a clear idea of God or no God, but you belong And we want to have you here.
2: And that's perhaps the most beautiful note to end on of them all. Thank you so much. And where can people get in touch with you if they want to come to a service?
1: Oh, we have a website, shirlibenu.ca. Or you can, I have a website, cantorsherylwunsch.com. You can find us there. Um, All of the contact info is there.
2: Until next time on The Radical Reverend Show. Bye, all.